Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. So if you're tuning in uh, this week and it's your first week, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, if this is your first week, then please note that this particular review is the third of a three-part review of what many consider to be Stephen King's greatest work, the post-apocalyptic American nightmare, uh, The Stand. So if this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going back to parts one and part two. I'd actually recommend going back all the way to the beginning, starting with Carrie and working your way through. Um, but it, it, especially if you if you tune in to just check out what I have to say about The Stand, I would start off with, with part one. Um, so before I get any further, everyone, I just want to uh, read a couple listener emails because I've been negligent in my podcasting host duties and I haven't been uh, really reading any listener emails lately so I have a couple that I wanted to share. So the first is from David who writes, I came across Stephen Kingcast yesterday. I've never been much of a podcast listener but I've grown weary of what radio has to offer these days and a friend suggested I create my own uh, drive time content via my smartphone. I've been a King fan since I first read Cujo as an 11-year-old boy in 1983, soon after my grandmother would begin buying me the latest hardcover release, starting with It, every year for my birthday. About eight years ago, I glanced at the collection I amassed and realized the paperbacks at the beginning were dwarfed by their glossy, wide-spined counterparts. I ordered the hardcovers of Carrie through the Talisman on eBay to complete my collection. As I placed the last volume on the shelf, I decided to reread all of King's works in the order they were published, especially since I had just completed the final Dark Tower volume and was anxious to see how many of the books fit into the mythology. It took me just over a year, but it was a satisfying year. At the request of a few friends who were following my quest, I ranked the titles by which I considered the greatest to the least. But your undertaking is so much greater. An hour podcast review of each book takes true perseverance and discipline, a quest for which I am grateful. I've only listened to your podcasts on The Gunslinger, but I'm already hooked. Your insight and analysis are in line with my thoughts as I read King, and I'm anxious to listen to your take on all of the books. I'm just about to begin your first podcast on Carrie and journey straight through, but I first want to thank you for undertaking this project and to know that your efforts are indeed appreciated. So, David, thank you so much. Um, I've stated in previous reviews that um, I'm a podcast listener and my uh, looking forward to my weekly podcasts is... Is an excitement that I, I feel as just on the same level as you know waiting for um, a new show, a television show to to drop each week. So the fact that I'm able to give that to someone out there, I mean that 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 really means a lot. And David, I would really um, be interested in in hearing what your ranking of uh, the the order of Stephen King books from uh, least to greatest is, because uh, I would love to share that on on air. And then we have Anne, who writes, Thank you so much for your time and efforts with the podcast. I really enjoy it. First thing first, I don't know if you've ever seen the Regulators and Desperation covers side by side, but once you see it, 
Um, I just thought that it was fun that he did that. And for those of you who haven't seen what Anne is talking about, when Stephen King released uh, The Regulators or Desperation, so let's just say when he released Desperation, he released it on the same day as The Regulators, vice versa, which also happened to take place in a really prolific year where he also had published... Um, uh, the Green Mile in uh, monthly serialized formats uh, in order to keep his you know creative juices flowing, his mental blade fresh and sharp. Um, so he, he wanted to challenge himself to do a Dickensian challenge. And so he, he did that, and then he also published uh, two books on the same day, um, one under the name Stephen King, one under the name Richard Bachman. And the two books, um, if you put them side by side, they, they form a complete picture. So it's pretty awesome. That's what Anne's talking about. Um, and then she writes, My personal favorite is The Talisman, followed closely by The Gunslinger, all eight of them. I am currently listening to The It Casts. Love them, and thank you again. A fantastic Pennywise could be John Carroll Lynch. He played Twisty the Clown in American Horror Story. If you have seen it, while Twisty is not Pennywise, I think Lynch could pull it off. I feel like there is so much to write about, I don't know where to start. Stephen King writes children, childhood, and inner life so well. He also writes about the horror of the mundane. So true. Especially needful things where everyday objects and everyday annoyances get magnified to madness. That's such a great line. Um, and I can't wait to get to needful things. Currently, I am reading this. Um, I'm recording this podcast. It is um, mid-April. Um, this will be dropping in the summer, um, but as I'm recording this, I am also working my way through my analysis of Four Past Midnight. Um, I've just finished The Langoliers, and I just finished uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden today. I'm about to start uh, The Library Policeman. So after that, I'll have The Sun Dog, and then I can launch into Needful Things. I'm very, very excited to get back to Castle Rock. Um... So, Anne, thank you so much. Feel free to write in again. And anyone else out there that has not done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And if you have not done so already, please um, subscribe on iTunes and feel free to write a review on iTunes uh, because the more reviews and subscriptions I get, the better it is to search for the Stephen King cast. So anyone that types in Stephen King, um, currently, if you type in Stephen King in iTunes, the Stephen King cast does not come up. Um, you have to type in Stephen King cast, and even then, it's not the first um, search result. So the more the more traffic it's getting, uh, the more subscription it gets, the more reviews it gets, the the better it is in the search. So just want to throw that out there. Okay, everyone, I'm going to dive back into my review of the stand, um, which will start on um, chapter sixty one. Book 3, The Stand, Chapter 61. Things do not bode well for the judge, um, who is known to be a spy and will be executed as soon as he's spotted by Flag's men. The scene leading up to the showdown is necessary in showing the society that Flag has built one of fear and superstition. Under the rule of Flag, everyone lives in constant terror of making a mistake that will result in punishment, in death, crucifixion, or worse. It's revealed that Flagg believes that two spies have been sent out west. Two, not three. It's not hard to piece together that Tom is passing unseen due to his singular nature. Judge, however... Now, this is an intense scene. First, it's unfortunate that the man had to meet this particular fate. 
It's worse that we never really got to know him very well. The shootout itself is sloppy, and Judge isn't able to get the drop on either of the two men who kill him badly. None of the three notice that a crow is watching intently. When the judge, shot in the gut, gets his hand on the gun, the two fools who have taken his life panic. As a result, Bobby Terry, who accidentally shoots his partner, shoots the judge in the head, which is the exact thing he had been afraid of doing, the one order that King had given, I'm sorry, that Flag had given them. And then King presents a scene that is the first scene I always think of when I think of Randall Flagg which comes on page 943. And in a dream of terror, Bobby Terry again heard Flag saying, I want to send him back undamaged. Holy God, this could be anyone. It was as if he had set out to do deliberately just the opposite of what the walking dude had ordered. Two direct hits in the face, even the teeth were gone. Rain, drumming, drumming. It was all over here. That was all. He didn't dare go east, and he didn't dare stay in the west. He would either wind up riding a telephone pole bareback or or something worse. Were there worse things? With that grinning freak in charge, Bobby Terry had no doubt there were. So what was the answer? Running his hands through his hair, still looking down at the ruined face of the judge, he tried to think. South, that was the answer. South, no border guards anymore. South to Mexico, if that wasn't far enough. Got on down to Guatemala, Panama, maybe even Brazil. Opt out of the whole mess. No more east, no more west. Just Bobby Terry, safe and as far away from the walking dude as old boogie shoes could carry. A new sound in the rainy afternoon. Bobby Terry's head jerked up. The rain, yes making its steel drum sound on the cabs of the two vehicles and the grumbling of the two idling motors and a strange clocking sound, like run-down boot heels hammering swiftly along the secondary road. No, Bobby Terry whispered. He began to turn around. The clocking sound was speeding up. A fast walk, a trot, a jog, a run, sprint, and Bobby Terry got all the way around. Too late, he was coming. Flag was coming like some terrible horror monster out of the scariest picture ever made. The dark man's cheeks were flushed with jolly color. His eyes were twinkling with happy good fellowship, and a great hungry voracious grin stretched his lips over huge tombstone teeth, shark teeth, and his hands were held out in front of him, and there were shiny black crow feathers fluttering from his hair. No, Bobby Terry tried to say, but nothing came out. Hey, Bobby Terry, you screwed it up! The dark man bellowed and fell upon the hapless Bobby Terry. There were worse things than crucifixion. There were teeth. Chapter 62. The previous chapter was dedicated to the judge. This one is dedicated to Dana, who has been sleeping with Lloyd. We get a good sense of the fear among the Las Vegas members. They live in constant fear of the leader that they have chosen. But he's a leader that's getting things done. And that's how King complicates the matter of good versus evil. Um, so on page 950, um, King writes, The others were also okay. She thought that Vegas had a rather larger proportion of stupids than the zones, but none of them wore fangs and they didn't turn into bats at moonrise. There were also people who worked much harder than she remembered the people in, in the zone working. In the free zone, you saw people idling in the parks at all hours of the day, and there were people who decided to break for lunch from noon until two. 
That sort of thing didn't happen over here. From 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., everybody was working, either at Indian Springs or on the maintenance crews here in town. And school had started again. There were about 20 kids in Vegas, ages ranging from 4 up to 15. They had found two people with teaching certificates, and classes went on five days a week. Lloyd, who had quit school after repeating his junior year for the third time, was very proud of the educational opportunities that were being provided. The pharmacies were open and unguarded. People came and went all the time, but they took away nothing heavier than a bottle of aspirin. There was no drug problem in the West. Anyone who had seen what had happened to Hector Drogan knew exactly what the penalty for a habit was. There were no rich Moffats either. Everyone was friendly and straight, and it was wise to drink nothing stronger than a bottled beer. Um, so, I mean, it it just shows that it's just not all about evil versus good. And it doesn't take long before Dana is found out and the scene grows and grows in unbearable tension as she is brought to Flag's palace. We know that she has her spring-loaded knife. What's going to happen? Will she get a chance to use it on him? <clears throat> Dana is caught completely off guard when Flag isn't a raging mon monster of wrath, but a kind and charming man who has a pleasant smile and lures her in. It's only after a few minutes when she realizes that he's been hypnotizing her, and when she looks at the moon to clear her head, she notices that his friendly demeanor begins to shift. Both King and Flag masterfully work the scene, luring and luring Dana in with false hope, even going so far as to tell Lloyd to gas up her bike so she can return to Free Zone and let everyone know about how good he is. And then just before she goes, he pulls back and asks for the identity of the third spy. Dana goes in for the kill, and for a second, we think that her switchblade might work. We're on page six, I'm sorry, 964 at this point, so anything goes, but his magic is too strong. In her hands, she holds a banana. Flag has turned her assassination attempt into a mockery, and before she can die at, at the result of what would have been a particularly nasty torture, torture session, she dies a brutal, ugly, painful death by throwing herself through the window upon whose jagged edges she is caught and dies only when she whips her head back and forth, gouging her neck on the shards of glass. Chapter 63. It's a short chapter, um, but King gives us the return of Julie Laurie, who spots Tom Cullen, and we know that this cannot end well. Chapter 64. Um, so this is the end of Harold. Now, we haven't seen him since the explosion, and King lets us know that his purpose has dried up. There's just simply no more use for Harold, either in the story or for Flag. He realizes that he was the victim of his own worst tendencies and realizes that his death approaches. If he could just have let go of his issues, he could have been somebody. He could have been Hawk. It is with this name that he writes his final entry in the journal, and when he's finished, he shoots himself. Chapter 65 We check back in with Flag, and it's the first time in hundreds of pages that we experience the scene through Flag's eyes, sleeping in the desert. It reads like that it could take place in the pages of the gunslinger when Roland is chasing him through the Mohane. If Flag ever truly had control, he's beginning to lose it. After a night with Nadine in which her dark destiny comes to pass, he is given a premonition that they are coming and begins to fear the unknown. As for his night with Nadine, on top of the fact that it's disturbing, purposefully, King presents Flag here as an inhuman creature that doesn't quite know itself. There are inhuman physical characteristics that present him more of a demon than a magician. 
This is the crux of the argument that I've made in many of my previous episodes when it comes to Flag. By the time his origin is spelled out for us in the Dark Tower 7, the Dark Tower, it doesn't quite line up with what is suggested here. Here he's a like shaggy Lovecraftian demon walking the earth. Later, he's a man who grew into a dark magician. Perhaps the two were the same. I mean, maybe the countless centuries transformed his true being. Maybe his true self looks like a demon, though he might not have been spawned from hell. Maybe he simply was promoted or demoted, however you want to look at it, through the years as his dark magic grew. Regardless, even though King specifically tells us in the final book of the Dark Tower who this character is, there's no clear definitive origin for this character. There's only pieces spread across decades, our decades, and it's up to us to piece them together however we want to, really. So if you want him to be a magician, he's a magician. If you want him to be a demon, he's a demon. Chapter 66. Back with Lloyd, we see another example of how things are falling apart in Vegas. Trash Can Man has blown up the Air Force base due to his instability. Julie informs Lloyd of Tom Cullen, but it's too late because Tom has just hightailed it out of Las Vegas. Chapter 67. King continues to detail the fall of Las Vegas through Lloyd's perspective. He realizes that, though he's been put in charge of running the operation, Flag has been keeping secrets, namely keeping the list of the Free Zone Committee from Lloyd. This decision allows Tom to sneak out of Vegas because Lloyd hadn't known that Tom's associate, Nick Andros, was on Flag's red list. Over the last few chapters, we've witnessed the fallible nature of Flag. In the eyes of the Free Zone characters, he's the ultimate evil. Here, however, he's just one step above your typical dictator. No more wise, no more omnipotent. Everything that can go wrong, goes wrong. Trash, before leaving, sets bomb to blow up every destructive advantage Flag could have had over the Free Zone. The pilots and the helicopters explode, leaving Flag without pilots to bomb Boulder. We are granted re the return of Nick here in ghost form, um, letting Tom know that he'll have to travel off-road for safety. Meanwhile, Flag is losing it. Nadine goads him, taunting him about the people leaving Las Vegas, about the whispers behind his back, and he finally snaps and unthinkingly hurls her off the balcony. You know, her final act is a metaphorical kick in the balls, and it was a swift one. Chapter 68. We learn that something is guiding Trash to find weaponry in the desert, and he finds a military installation that has been uh, working with radiation, which we are led to believe is a nuclear bomb. Chapter 69. Nadine's taunts manifest truth when Whitney Hogan informs Lloyd that a number of Flag's inner crew are planning on leaving for Brazil. Lloyd understands the reasons, but feels he owes too much to Flag to leave him. Chapter 70. Trash finds the warhead, and we know that this can't end well. Chapter 71, we are treated to a scene where Flag uses the eye. Until now, it's only been discussed by the other characters who have sensed it watching them from the dark, but here we get to see exactly how Flag uses it. And it's a great... Um, it's just a... I mean, we've seen Flag grow throughout the, the book, and when we had first met him, he was a drifter who had just started to realize the possibilities of his powers, learning to levitate across the ground. And now we see that he's able to project himself and his consciousness in the astral plane and, and use this, this mystical eye to see. Chapter 72. 
Glenn, Larry, Stu, and Ralph are making their way to Vegas, and King captures the purity of their mission, the cleansing nature of their walk. Along the way, they pass by the corpse of Harold, and later, the kid. The corpse of Harold brings mixed feelings within Stu, who isn't going to let him off the hook, but also recognizes that he was used by Flag, and once he fulfilled his purpose, was discarded like a fast food wrapper. He recognizes the unfairness of it all, and it makes him want to kill Flag all the more. Glenn puts their mission into perspective by comparing their brains to a car's battery, and their long walk is the brains being charged. Everything that had filled their lives would drain power from the battery, and now devoid of any accessories to drain that power, they are charging fast and pure. But it's not going to matter to Stu. When the fall comes, King teases it, having Stu worry for each of his friends when in fact he should have been worrying for himself. His fall is messy and painful and breaks his leg in two places. Stu's fall places Larry in charge, and Larry rebels against the notion of leaving Stu behind, which is what they have to do based on their agreement with Mother Abigail before she passed. What's the purpose of Stu falling? Other than it being a deus ex machina to save his life, as if King knows that at least one of his heroes has to live, the scene functions as a moment of suspense, an unexpected bend in a roller coaster. Of course, we'd expected the showdown between, to be between Stu and Flag. Stu, who represented the best of us, and Flag, who represented our worst. Now, we aren't going to get that, and how should we feel? Disappointed? I don't know. I mean, the answer is wrapped up in Larry's arc, so it isn't an easy one to answer, but from the age-old traditional hero versus the traditional villain showdown, we don't get that here, and for some readers, might leave them feeling a little left out. It also doesn't happen that until that point, Stu hadn't, Stu hadn't served a purpose to the others. The only function he'll have is when he meets up with Tom later on, but ultimately, it's fair if you ask, what's the point? Not necessarily what's the point of Stu falling, which adds drama and tension, but what was the point of Stu going in the first place if this was going to happen? What's the point of King placing Stu on the mission? And more importantly, what's the point of God placing Stu on the mission when Stu doesn't serve a purpose on the journey? With all that said, The Fall causes a series of wonderful moments. Not wonderful as in, oh joy, but great moments between characters. Specifically the goodbye between Glenn and Stu, whose friendship had been a bedrock of this novel. Glenn had been the first person that Stu had met after the worst aspects of society had locked him up against his will, and Glenn seemed to redeem all that. They made a great pair, the East Texas Calculator Assembly Line worker and the New Hampshire Sociologist Professor. Their goodbye to each other which they know is a final goodbye, is tender and very hard to read, as is Stu's quiet passing of leadership to a reluctant Larry. Larry, once more, takes center stage as he heads west for a final time. And though we had expected a Stu versus Flag showdown, doesn't it really make more sense for a Larry versus Flag showdown? Larry, who had thought himself selfish and broken, who returns to the west a fuller man, a father, a husband, a leader, one who was able to look corruption in the face and stare it down. There's something more fitting about it being Larry. And when it's Larry's time to die, I think it's a much harder death to read about and the great final redemption for that character. But we'll get to that later. Chapter 73. Kojak is here to help Stu out. A very sweet moment. And Larry's group have a discussion about the wildlife returning, especially the buffalo. 
I can't think of a more solid example of symbolic foreshadowing than this. If this is a novel about the war of America's soul, what better way to hint at its redemption than the return of the buffalo? The first confrontation between the East and the West comes when Larry's group confronts a line of Flag's men, who all seem like frightened idiots. Though outnumbered and outgunned, Glenn, Larry, and Ralph stand tall and challenge the men to say Flag's name, which they won't. It's already one victory for the good guys. It's funny because the confrontation is pretty amicable, and the conversation between Barry Dorgan and Larry is pleasant enough despite the circumstances. And then once in jail, Flag introduces himself to Glenn. And in every conceivable way, Flag is outmatched. It's wonderful seeing Glenn outwit Flag in his place, demonstrating a complete lack of fear, not building up the dark man's ego. His takedown of Flag is a triumphant moment that unfortunately ends with his death, but in the moments leading up to it, Glenn makes Flag look like a fool, a petulant child and both he and Lloyd look extremely incompetent. Maybe the death is unrelated, or if some of Glenn's strength goes into Larry, but King writes about Larry on page 1074. Larry was lying on his cot, hands laced at the back of his head. He had not slept the night before. He had been thinking, praying, it was all the same thing. Whatever it had been, the old wound in himself had finally closed, leaving him at peace. He had felt the two people that he had been all his life, the real one and the ideal one, merge into a one living being. His mother would have liked this Larry and Rita Blakemore. This was a Larry to whom Wayne Stuckey never would have had to tell the facts. It was a Larry that even that long ago oral hygienist might have liked. I'm going to die. If there's a God, and now I believe there must be, that's his will. We're going to die and somehow all of this will end as a result of our dying. Well, it finally happened. Larry is the man he never thought he could be. His battery, so to speak, along with Ralph's, has charged up. Now operating at full capacity, they are somehow changing the course of action with their mere presence. Something is going to happen. The Las Vegas citizens know this, and though <clears throat> Larry and Ralph are walking to their deaths, it's Flag's people who are afraid. King places us squarely in the position of Larry and Ralph, who don't know what's coming, but know that it can't be good. And King sets the stage for the end, with Larry making peace with his upcoming death on page 1067, or 1076, 1076. I will fear no evil, he muttered, but he was afraid. He closed his eyes, thought of Lucy. He thought of his mother. Random thoughts. Getting up for school on cold mornings. The time he had thrown up in church. Finding a skin magazine in the gutter and looking at it with Rudy, both of them about nine years old. Watching the World Series, his first fall in L.A. with Yvonne Wetterlin. He didn't want to die. He was afraid to die. But he had made his peace with it as best he could. The choice, after all, had never been his to make and he had come to believe that death was just a staging area, a place to wait, the way you waited in a green room before going on to play. He rested as easily as he could, trying to make himself ready. Though making peace with his death can't be easy, knowing that they're about to be drawn and quartered. The tension is building rapidly. We're very close to the end of this novel. This is it. 
This is the stand. What's going to happen? How can Larry and Ralph overcome this? Flagg reads his proclamation to his masses, the sentencing of Larry and Ralph, and Flagg learns that he doesn't hold as much sway as he thought he did. Whitney Hogan stands up to Flagg, attempts to rally a frightened crowd, and Flagg commands control by pulling him to his will and engulfing his head in fire. <clears throat> it's a ball of electric fire that hangs in front of the crowd that parts and panics as Trash Can Man returns with the warhead. Flag devolves into a whining, impotent baby, pleading for Lloyd to have Trash Can take it away. And Flag's depowerment is recognized by Trash, who can't sense his Dark Lord anymore. And so then his ball of energy, which he had used as a demonstration of showing everyone how great he is, has gotten away from him and has swelled in size. Um, and then... He realizes that things are so out of control. Flag flees from this earth the moment before his little ball of electric fire, like I said, which had doubled in size, flings itself at the warhead, blowing Las Vegas off of the map. So let's talk about that. Okay. In the end, Larry and Ralph and Glenn and Stu weren't meant to fight Flag or beat him with magic. There was no last-minute power-up or a cosmic battle like the Losers versus the Spider in It. It was like the title suggested. All they were required to do was stand. Just stand up to the Dark Man. To just show their strength and belief. Their purity was enough to beat back the evil. In the end, faith overcame fear. In the end, the last hundred pages or so just detailed Flag being his own demise. He lost complete control of his people. He murdered his wife. He didn't let his right-hand man in on all the information, which let one of the spies go. He, com he, he came completely done. And then in the end, what wound up killing everyone was a result of his own magic, a display of how great he was, blowing everything up. So... In the end, it was just it it's just great to know that it's Flag undoing his own machinations. Or his machinations undoing his his vision and all of his all of his power that he had amassed. I'm sorry, I just uh my phone just buzzed, so I had to look at it for a second. So sorry about that, guys. Um anyway, chapter seventy four. Stu, though not able to confront the dark man in Las Vegas with his friends, witnesses the result of the showdown when he manages to climb up the embankment to witness the mushroom cloud from the detonation in the city. Though it's confirmation that the era of the Dark Man is over, it doesn't mean that he is saved yet, as he's starting to succumb to a fever from the infection caused by his broken leg. But M-O-O-N spells rescue as Tom Cullen, on his way back from his spying mission, comes to his aid. Tom is able to bring some food, aspirin, and shelter for Stu right when he needs it the most. And then in one of the most heart-wrenching scenes from the book, Stu quietly tells Tom about Nick's passing. It comes quick, without build-up, and King relies on our relationship with the characters and the understanding of the depth of the relationship between each other to know what is on their mind without him having to write about it. When Tom says Stu, Stu knows what's on Tom's mind. And he has to deliver the bad news. Stu's health declines rapidly, and it looks like he might not make it. 
Tom's a bit out of his depth, but thankfully, he has the ghost of Nick to guide him. Nick sleepwalks Tom to a pharmacy and gives Tom the pills that he'll need in order for Stu to survive. With the supernatural conflict over, the novel simply becomes a survival tale. Yes, there is a ghost, but remove the ghost and not much changes. Stu's broken body is in the hands of Tom, and they need to get home before the snows fall. Unfortunately, between the incoming weather and Stu's slow healing time, they aren't able to get through Utah before the first of the snows come. And while they're holed up, Stu begins to dream of Franny having a difficult labor. Does this mean the dream will come true? King has around 30 pages to wrap up this story, and he's not going to make it easy on us. They decide to try their luck by snowmobiling the rest of the way home, and all the while, King teases the threat of them being buried in an avalanche. In just a nice moment on Christmas, Stu surprises Tom with a Christmas tree and presents. In a world of survival, moments like this reinforce the humanity that they're trying to save. It's not a huge moment, but it's an important one nonetheless. And it's a moment like these that are missing from The Walking Dead. If it was Christmas on The Walking Dead, one of the characters would simply monologue about the importance of what Christmas used to mean, and they all stare grimly at each other. Nothing against The Walking Dead, but there needs to be some levity here and there to break up the unrelenting grimness. King knows that, and knows that if you don't celebrate the human experience, then survival isn't worth it. Stu and Tom and Kojak finally make it to Boulder City limits, but their joy is quickly dashed when Stu learns that while Franny's baby didn't die in childbirth, it has come down with Captain Trips. Chapter 76. Very sweetly, King provides the reunion between Stu and Franny. There's not much to it, but I'm a sucker for those moments. Chapter 77. Here, King closes out the story of Stuart and Franny who wishes a return to Maine someday, and King slips in a Castle Rock reference. King ends our time with Franny, Stu, and baby Peter in Mother Abigail's home as they make their way back to Maine. Stu ponders the growing society within the free zone, but King does not present it positively. With the fact that the city is bursting at the seams, it has begun to feel a little pre-plague and not in the best ways. Despite everything that everyone has gone through, some people are quick to slide back into old habits, habits of conquering and force, and King ends this section on an ambiguous note of Stu thinking of Free Zone's new marshal, Hugh Petrella, and his uncompromising ways, of his growing police force, of his argument of arming that police force. It might just be for Free Zone, but right now Free Zone is all there is. If you can't manage that one city that exists the one that had been born from the shared belief in the goodness of Mother Abigail without the need for weaponry, then what hope does humanity have? And on that note, as if to answer, King gives his final ending with the resurrection of Flag, now going by Russell Faraday, who awakens on a beach with no memory of himself, but the knowledge that he must conquer the tribe that comes out of the jungle, and he will teach them his version of civilization. Okay, guys, what I'm going to do now, um, I've just I've gotten through with the, the ongoing commentary of the book, but what I'm going to do now, I'm going to um, break down the characters, um, and then uh, I'll get to the Easter eggs, um, which are just the little um, shout-outs to other Stephen King works and references, and then I'll get to the Stephen King-isms, the traits and tricks and tropes and patterns of, uh, of Stephen King. So the first character I'm going to talk about is Stu. 
In previous podcast episodes, I've discussed the Stephen King hero. And by that, I don't mean the writer, as he tends to make his leads creative types, usually writers. The Stephen King hero that I mean here is that stoic, noble everyman, first seen with Salem's Lot's hero, Ben Mears. Then we had Johnny Smith, we had Ben Hanscom, Alan Pangborn, others. Stu is the distillation of all of these characters boiled down to a character who embodies their traits in order to perform them on his grandest stage of all outside of the Dark Tower series. Stu is quiet, introspective, thoughtful, tough. He's the kind of guy that's built Ford tough. It was wise on King's part to make him a Texan rather than the go-to main character because if he's going to tell a story about the end of America... Texas needs to be represented as it serves such a large part of the United States, both figuratively and literally. One might have assumed that Glenn Bateman or Franny or even Larry would function as the backbone of the novel, as they are characters handling from the eastern United States, but King knows that nothing screams America like a Texan. Um, so, I mean, Stu is just a fantastic character. There's not much more to say about it because everything about Stu is just laid out there in the text. There's not a lot of subtext to Stu. Um, but I just wanted to put that out there, how he is the distillation of all of the, the best traits of all of Stephen King's heroes. Next up is Larry. Um, as I've said before, Larry may not be the main character, but he is the most important one. He's the one who goes through an actual arc not too many characters can say the same. Despite the fact that the, lo the novel is loaded with them, Harold goes through an arc. Nadine just comes undone. But Larry crosses the country back and forth in search of himself and ultimately rejects the claim that had once been thrown at him of not being a nice guy by sacrificing himself to save the human race by looking evil in the eye and refusing to flinch. He's a character who thought the worst of himself more so than anyone else did. His mother accused him of being a taker. Maybe that's so, but he's not malicious or spiteful or mean. He just might have a thought about himself more than he thought about others, which isn't to say that he didn't think about others. The fact that this bothered him as much as it did shows that he's a really good guy. You know, it's just too bad that it took the apocalypse um, for him to figure that out. Though he might have been a taker at the beginning of the novel... He was never not honest. His ability to speak the truth about himself, about situations, is his greatest strength and speaks to his big heart. I think that Judge um, is someone that, that summarizes Larry the best on page 629. Larry is a man who found himself comparatively late in life, the judge said, clearing his throat. At least that's how he strikes me. Men who find themselves late are never sure. They are all the things the civics books tell us the good citizens should be. Partisans, but never zealots. Respecters of the facts which attend to each situation, but never benders of those facts. Uncomfortable in positions of leadership, but rarely able to turn down a responsibility once it's been offered or thrust upon them. They make the best leaders in a democracy because they are unlikely to fall in love with power. Quite the opposite. And when things go wrong, when a Mrs. Vallman dies, a man like Larry blames himself. And then we have Nadine. Poor Nadine. Um, she's such an interesting character. In the hands of a weaker writer, 
She would have been the Lilith, the temptress. She'd be a knowing, willing consort of Randall Flagg. Now, while her fate is destined by her own actions to become Flagg's bride, King never forgets to make her a character, never turning her into a caricature. Her life is defined by duality. Her dark hair is streaked with white. The perfect memory of youth when the boy chased her through the moonlight only to have that moment sour when the clouds flew over the moon. She has natural motherhood instincts but remains virginal. She loathes murder but is complicit in the murder of the Free Zone Committee. Nadine is meant to be the bride of Flag in order to bring his child into the world, but really, what's the point? What will the child be that Flag is not? And if you have read Flag in other books, at no point does fatherhood motivate him towards any action. Are we supposed to take away that the child will be even more powerful than his father? Will Flag be reborn through his child? Is that the secret of his long life? Will he give birth to the Crimson King? I mean, these are all questions that are never explored, and it's a plot point that seems carried over from the Omen. To be perfectly honest, it doesn't really fit, and I wish that it wasn't included. It muddies Flag's motivations, meaning that he's not a character that really had motivations. He just wants to sow chaos. He wants to bring about ruin to civilization. And apparently, he really, really wants to be a dad. I mean, maybe the baby rounds out the thematic aspect of the new family that's built up in the apocalypse. The evil father, his dark bride, and their child. Mother Abigail positions that the child is the opposition to Franny's own, but I can't buy into that. The whole you know, pregnant plot works wonders for the downfall of Nadine, but it doesn't really make sense for Flag or the overall story. Maybe there's no meaning to the baby. Maybe the baby would just be a baby. Maybe it's like I said, and, and all joking aside, maybe Flag just really wanted to be a dad. Then we have Harold. Harold is a fascinating character. His arc is the dark mirror of Larry's own. Both characters start off in low places, and the apocalypse serves as a clean slate in which they can reinvent themselves. Both characters struggle as they make their way across the landscape, but where Larry succeeds in being the man he always thought and wished he could have been, Harold actively turns away from it to be the man he always thought he was. Even though given the opportunity to be a part of the community of the Free Zone, in which he was starting to build a life and friends and respect among his peers, he definitively chooses the way of flag. He can never get rid of himself. He can never get out of his own way. He continues to blame everyone else around him, and he lets his jealousies and resentment bring about his own ruin. Had he been able to be humbled by the apocalypse, he might have been the most valuable player on the board. And now there's flag. Um... So I'm going to have a lot to say about Flag. Um, oh, sorry, I take that back. I'm not going to say a lot about Flag. I'm going to touch about touch upon Flag in a bonus episode that I'm releasing the same time as this about the Dark Tower and the Dark Tower connections to the stand. But one thing that you should know, if this is your first time listening, I have talked about Flag extensively in the following podcast reviews. The review of The Gunslinger, the bonus review of The Gunslinger, um, or maybe I just listed it as part two at the time, there was a two-part Gunslinger review in which I discussed Flag very, very heavily, especially that second review. Um, the Eyes of the Dragon and the Eyes of the Dragon bonus review, um, I discussed Flag. 
I even discussed Flag, I believe, in the bonus edition of the It review as I um, established the connection between um, the events of It and the Dark Tower. So I have talked about Flag a lot, um, even though Flag is making his first appearance here. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to celebrate Stephen King's writing of Flag by kind of providing... Uh, kind of uh, the greatest hits of Flag. Um, on page 653, uh, Mother Abigail um, is thinking about Flag and talking about Flag, um, and King provides his thesis on Flag. He had, no he had no name, although it pleased him to call himself Flag, at least for the time being. And on the far side of the mountains, his work was already well begun. She did not know his plans. They were as veiled from her eyes as whatever secrets lay in that fat boy Harold's heart. But she did not have to know the specifics. His goal was clear and simple, to destroy all of them. His, her understanding of him was surprisingly sophisticated. The people who had been drawn to the free zone all came to see her in this place, and she received them, although they sometimes made her tired, and they all wanted to tell her that they had dreamed of her and him. They were terrified of him, and she nodded and comforted and soothed as best she could, but privately she thought that most of them wouldn't know this flag if they met him on the street unless he wanted to be noticed. They might feel him. A cold chill, the kind you got when a goose walked over your grave. A sudden hot feeling like a fever flash, or a sharp and momentary drilling pain in the ears or the temples. But these people were wrong to think that he had two heads or six eyes or a big spike horns growing out of his temples. He probably didn't look much different than a man who used to bring the milk or the mail. She guessed that behind the conscious evil there was an unconscious blackness. That was what distinguished the earth children of darkness. They couldn't make things, but only break them. God the Creator had made man in his own image, and that meant that every man and woman who dwelt under God's light was a creator of some kind, a person with an urge to stretch out his hand and shape the world into some rational pattern. The black man wanted was able only to unshape. Antichrist? We might as well say anti-creation. He would have his followers, of course. That was nothing new. He was a liar, and his father was the father of lies. He would be like a big neon sign to them, standing high to the sky, dazzling their sight with frizzing fireworks. They would not be apt to notice, these apprentice shapers, that like a neon sign, he only made the simple patterns over and over again. They would not be apt to realize that if you release the gas which makes the pretty patterns from its complex assortment of tubes, it floats silently away and dissipates, leaving not a taste or so much as a whiff or smell behind. Um, and then, you know, King goes on. He goes on for a while about that particular interpretation of flag, which I want to stress is Mother Abigail's interpretation of Flag. It's very easy to look at him and apply Western religious iconography to this character um, and say that he's the devil. That's what Mother Abigail believes. She might not refer to him as the devil, but she'll refer to him as Satan's imp or the devil's imp or a devil. And that's how she sees it um, because that is her her 
belief standpoint. I don't think it's that easy um, because even though the novel is dealing with um, very Christian symbols, I don't think that we are meant to take away that, that flag falls into that. I think that it's part of the character in the sense that it, the devil, as we know, has certain characteristics and he embodies some of those characteristics. But the literal interpretation of him being a devil, I don't believe that he was an angel. I don't believe that, you know, he fell from heaven. I don't believe that when he is, you know, he goes to his home, it's a um, burning lake of fire, right? I, I don't think that those can be applied to flags. So I think that's doing him a disservice to lock him into one particular interpretation. Um, but it's important because what she says there about how he's just the, he's not the antichrist, he's the anti-creation. That speaks to the chaotic nature of flag. Flag sows chaos. He doesn't, he does not sow evil. That's not who flag is. Flag will, with the chaos. So, I mean, so picture him as a gardener. Okay. Um, the chaos is the soil right and from the soil might grow evil um but he he doesn't seek out evil he doesn't necessarily go out of his way to tempt and lure people for the 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 sake of their soul that version of a character um that that devilish tempter is is found more in the characteristics of leland gaunt from needful things than flag um i think flag just kind of like likes luring people over to make himself feel better of having control over people because he doesn't have a grand plan he's very similar to the joker from the dark knight when the joker says you know he doesn't have a plan um you know he's kind of like a dog just chasing after a car he doesn't know what he'll do when he gets to it he he's just someone that likes to reacts to things he's not really proactive yes he gets everything up and running but i don't know he doesn't he doesn't really think things through and that's that's the flag here and that's also the flag in eyes of the dragon who you know i mean when flag becomes undone it, it's very much in line with how he becomes undone in eyes of the dragon um and so that was Mother Abigail's interpretation of flag. Um, and then we have uh, Glenn's interpretation of flag on page 742. He says, he's talking about dark magic here. Um, Mother Abigail calls him the devil's imp. Maybe he's just the last magician of rational thought gathering the tools of technology against us. And maybe there's something more, something much darker. I only know that he is. And I no longer think that sociology or psychology or any other ology will put an end to him. I think only white magic will do that. And our white magician is out there someplace, wandering and alone. But I just love what he says. Maybe he's just the last magician of rational thought. So right there... I mean, Glenn is being poetic, um, but King does mention the word magician. 
and that is something that will come up with Flag again. I mean, that points more to his true nature than, you know, what Glenn references here, um, that Mother Abigail says that he's the devil's imp, um, which I, I've said before, I, I just I don't think that that's the way that we should be looking at Flag. He's a chaos sower, um, but he's someone that was once a person. And then we have Tom. Um, and this is where things get a little complicated, and I think that this complicated things for a lot of Stephen King fans. He says, He looks like anyone you see on the street, but when he grins, birds fall, fall dead off of telephone lines. When he looks at you a certain way, your prostate goes bad and your urine burns. The grass yellows up and dies where he spits. He's always outside. He came out of time. He doesn't know himself. He has the name of a thousand demons. Jesus knocked him into a herd of pigs once. His name is Legion. He's afraid of us. We're inside. He knows magic. He can call the wolves and live in the crows. He's the king of nowhere, but he's afraid of us. He's afraid of inside. Um, I, I, I don't want to go too far into this, um, but if you want, to hear my thoughts on Legion, um, head on over to the bonus episode of the Dark Tower, um, entitled, I believe it's the, the the Spider and the Turtle, in which I discuss Legion, because Legion is something that King mentions um, many, many times in his works. It's mentioned in the original draft of The Gunslinger. It is mentioned in it, it's mentioned here, it's mentioned in The Storm of the Century. So, I do not think that, because it's mentioned in all of those, um, what I did in that particular review, I broke it down, and I do not think that King is stating that all of these are the same character. I just think that King is playing with this particular piece of the Bible. I think that he just, he likes that name and I think that he likes that particular story but what I think that Tom says here that's true is that he came from outside which um, is is also very similar to um, the spider itself from it but he came from outside yes on this particular earth yes he did come from outside um, as fans of the Dark Tower will know um, and it's it's perfectly true that he is afraid of them because they're inside, which speaks to Stephen King's philosophy um, and the basis for what I've been saying um, is King's overarching and underlying thesis that he writes about the best of humanity um, in the worst of situations. And because it's the worst situations, it just shows how good people really are. And that's the inside the fact there is a free zone that has banded together, that is everything that Stephen King has worked for in all of his books. That's everything that he has talked about. That's Stephen King to a T. And Flag is everything that that is not. He just wants to tear it down. Um, Flag is... He's outside the system. In some ways, he is the system, that corrupt part of the system that breaks us down. So I'm going to talk about Flag a little bit more um, in the bonus episode that is releasing the same time as this, just kind of putting him into the context of the greater works of uh, uh, the Dark Tower universe. I've talked about the Dark Tower here, but I'll talk more about the Dark Tower. Again, do a little bit of details um, there. So there might be some uh, 
repetitive thoughts, um, but I'll definitely go into more detail with that. So that's Flag. Um, now I want to talk about Ralph. Um, and Ralph is an interesting character because he's not one of our group's figureheads the way Larry, Nick, and Stu had been. And he's not one of our antagonists the way that Lloyd and Trash were. He's a secondary character that's promoted to the big leagues at the end of the book um, to confront ultimate evil. He's not given um, as much book time as many of our characters, um, but it's clear that Stephen King loves this guy. Uh, and he gives him a wonderful description on page uh, 655. Mother Abigail cackled. She did like Ralph. He was a simple soul, but canny. He had a feel for how things worked. She was not surprised that he had been the one to get what everyone now called free zone radio going. He was the kind of man who wouldn't be afraid to try epoxy on your tractor battery when it started to split open. And if the epoxy did the job, why, he'd just take off his shapeless hat and scratch his balding head and grin that grin like he was an 11-year-old kid with the chores done and his fishing pole leaned against his shoulder. He was a good sort to have around when things weren't going just right, and a type of man who would always somehow ended up on relief when times were flush for just about everyone else. He could put the right sort of valve on your bicycle pump when it wouldn't mate to a tire bigger than the kind that went on a bike, and he'd know what was making that funny buzzing noise in your oven just by looking at it. But when he had to deal with the company time clock, he'd somehow always end up punching in late and punching out early and get fired for it before very long. He'd know you could fertilize corn with pig shit if you mixed it right, and he'd know how to pickle cukes, but he would never be able to understand a car loan agreement or to figure out how the dealers managed to rook him every time. A job application form filled out by Ralph Bretner would look as if it had been through a Hamilton Beach blender, misspelled, dog-eared, dotted with blots of ink and greasy fingerprints. His employment history would look like a checkerboard, which had been around the world on a, a tramp steamer. When the very fabric of the world began to tear open, it was the Ralph Bretners who were not afraid to say, let's slap a little epoxy in there and see if that'll hold her. And more often than not, it did. You're a good fellow, Ralph. You know it. You're a one. Trash can man. There's a funny thing about trash. In all of the talk of sending spies back and forth, there's one that was never accounted for, and that's Trash. And Trash never knew it. He might have thought that he was a pawn of Flag. Flag might have thought that he was Trash's lord. But the entire time, Trash Can Mad had been used and manipulated by Abigail's god in order to position the nuke close enough to shut down Flag's operation forever. It's a really interesting um, aspect to the Trash Can Man character. Okay, now is something I want to talk about um, that I've hinted at here and there. Not even hinted at, but I mean, I'm just going to go more into detail here than I have earlier. And I want to talk about order and chaos. And as much as the novel is about the final stand for good and evil in America, it's just as much a statement on the never-ending battle between order and chaos, a concept that King has explored in many of his other works, including Pet Cemetery, Insomnia, and the Dark Tower series. So much of what occurs in this novel can't be chalked up to evil, but instead what we consider chaos. Sure, there's evil, but the evil is represented at the human level, and it comes about only when there's chaos. 
It's like I said earlier. It's as if chaos is the fertile ground in which evil is allowed to grow as poisonous flowers. Just examine the beginning of the novel. The superflu is not released into the world with malicious intent. There isn't a saboteur within the compound who wants to lay waste to humanity. Randall Flagg hasn't been whispering in some technician's ear or isn't hiding in a lab coat posing as one of the scientists. What occurs is human error that takes three forms. The creation of the biological weapon, thinking that the weapon could be contained, and Campion finally escaping from the facility. The human error in thinking that creating a biological weapon is a good idea. Yeah, you can make the argument that the simple fact that anyone would want to cook this up is in itself an evil notion. However, we don't know the reasons. Maybe it's an offshoot of another experiment where they're looking for a cure for something, maybe cancer. Who knows? I know it's a stretch, and yes, the probability that the creation of Captain Trips is for biological warfare, but to me... The characters who view the proceedings on a macro level, the General Starkeys, never let on that Captain Trips would ever be used. It's as if it was made just because they could. That seems to be more in line with what King is trying to say about the triviality of what constitutes as evil. That it isn't some sweeping, all-powerful force. It's like a virus itself. It spreads and contaminates. But it isn't that classic tempting evil, that corrupting force. I mean, there is temptation. Flag does tempt, but this is different. King's greatest comment on evil is present here, and will be on full force in the pages of the Dark Tower. And that's it's that evil is um, just, it's it's just pretty dumb. I mean, that's that's the simplest way of putting it. You know, King's greatest comment on evil is to de-emphasize it and insult it by taking away its power. If you want to say that Captain Trips is evil because it was created as a weapon, then that's fine. But the reason that the evil is released in the world is not a result of malicious intent. It's because of a human screw-up. Even in the novel, there's very few examples of evil as we come to think of it. Evil is presented as pretty bumbling. Lloyd's crime scree is comprised of two bumbling cokeheads. There's no great grand plan. The judge's execution is a sloppy mess of people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, there's evil. I mean, Stu Stern's captors are evil. Harold Lauder makes a very definitive decision to do wrong, which takes multiple lives simply because he wants to get back at people based on his own insecurities. Evil exists, but I'd argue that evil only exists because it's allowed to exist when the structures of order have fallen. It's chaos that allows the military to open fire on the college students. It's chaos that allows the martial law that regulates the press. It's chaos that springs up in the free zone when Harold's bomb goes off and whips the free zone citizens into a blood frenzy. Are the free zone survivors evil? No. But they're angry, disrespectful, disorderly, and want revenge. At that moment, any of them are capable of committing acts that you or I might constitute as evil. But when you get right down to it, the only reason that that's possible is because of the chaos that's been wrought. But what about Flag? you might ask? He's the devil, right? Like I said earlier, no, not at all. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of theological discussion around good and evil and about the will of God. But like I said earlier, these are the discussions that are held by the survivors of the United States of America, and America is predominantly a Christian country. If the novel took place in Japan or the Middle East, do you think they'd use the same terminology? Would they have the same views? No, they wouldn't. 
only reason that the devil, as we know him, all fire and brimstone, is ever brought up is because it's filtered through our characters who, although they might not all be Christians, have been raised in a society influenced by Christian beliefs. In the Dark Tower novels, the Talisman novels and others, King writes of the source of the power that Mother Abigail calls God as the white. This force speaks to Mother Abigail as her recognizable God. To Lewis Creed in Pet Cemetery, it spoke as Victor Pascal, the deceased university student. To the losers, it spoke first as the voice of the turtle and later as the creator of the turtle. To Jack Sawyer, he hears it as the voice of the talisman. It's a force that takes many forms, but what it is, is the white. The white combats the swirling dark that began in the beginning of the universe. The opposing force is a very Lovecraftian concept, and King, having been a Lovecraft fan, will be the first to tell you that when it comes to the Elder Gods, there's no good, there's no evil. They're not tempting devils on our shoulders. They're indifferent because they're born from chaos. Similarly, the origins of the multiverse and the works of Stephen King reveal that everything was born from chaos. The thin darkness that separates the worlds from each other are filled with tentacled monsters. There's no design there. There's no reason. There's only chaos. Randall Flagg is the personification of that chaos. He's the embodiment of the swirling blackness pressing down on planet Earth, just waiting for the right time to consume it. Yeah, he tempts but only to spread chaos. Good and evil suggest intent for a greater cause, evil for the sake of evil. Flag is not that. Like I said, he wouldn't know what to do with the car if he caught up to it. Flag only wants to wreck chaos in this new world because it's the chaos he feeds off of, not the evil of men. He wants to obliterate the free zone because he wants to send humanity back to the dark ages where chaos reigns supreme. It's chaos. The world of the gunslingers fell because chaos grew too strong for them to keep in check. The revolution of Inworld, led by a man named John Farson, who may or may not have been Randall Flagg, depending on what version of the text you read, is very similar to the gathering of the forces in Las Vegas. When Inworld fell, the world fell into chaos. It's why the presence of Roland, the last gunslinger, is so important. He doesn't represent good, because Roland's actions are horrific. What he represents is order in an orderless world that was partially brought about by the machinations of the character that we have come to know through the stand as Randall Flagg. So, I mean, that... I touched a lot on um, Dark Tower stuff in there. Um, and don't get me wrong, I still have more Dark Tower stuff to talk about in the bonus episode, but Chaos and Order is a huge part of the works of Stephen King. And... Um, it's a huge part here, but I think that it it can get lost because I think that a lot of people will read into the fact that it's about good and evil, and I don't think that that's necessarily it. On page three eighty seven, um, I we I'm going to share what could be the the quote of the book. If you come back this way and renew your invitation to join up, Stu will probably agree. That's the curse of the human race, sociability. What Christ should have said was, Yea, verily, whenever two or three of you are gathered together, some other guy is going to get the living knocked out of him. Shall I tell you what sociology teaches us about the human race? I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Show me a man or a woman alone and I'll show you a saint. Give me the two and I'll fall in love. 
Give me three, and they'll invent a charming thing we call society. Give me four, and they'll build a pyramid. Give me five, and they'll make one an outcast. Give me six, and they'll reinvent prejudice. Give me seven, and in seven years, they'll reinvent warfare. Man may have been made in the image of God, but human society was made in the image of his opposite number, and it's always trying to get back home. All right, everyone, what we have now, um, I'm going to go through the Easter eggs, which are the references to other Stephen King works. The first one that we have um, is Captain Trips. It's the name of the superflu that wiped out the population uh, of another Earth in uh, the Night Shift story, Night Surf. And Captain Trips is an actual character in a 1990s TV miniseries, The Golden Years, which featured as the villains the government agency known as The Shop. Now, I'm hoping that in the upcoming Stand movie, when the superflu breaks out, it escapes uh, not some random military installation, but one belonging to The Shop, and I think that, that would be a great Easter egg. Um, speaking of The Shop, The Shop itself is referenced on page 32. Um... Number three is possibly a Crimson King reference, um, which is just the, the, the Randall Flag stone with the eye on it. Number four is the Wizard of Oz. Um, now, I could list this under the Kingisms because this is a case of King playing with imagery from the classic film as evidence from Pet Cemetery and Wizard in Glass. But I'm going to include it here because it serves as an actual connection between two books. In the scene in which Tom and Nick are in the basement of the barn during the tornado, both of them grow convinced that they're not alone in the basement, that the dark man from their dreams is there with them. Tom believes he came from the tornado, and Nick believes that the tornado was simply a manifestation of the dark man. It doesn't matter. What matters is that the evil supernatural creature who performs magic is intertwined with the tornado, much in the way that the Wicked Witch of the West, an evil supernatural creature who performs magic, is intertwined with a similar tornado. There's a clear parallel to the Wizard of Oz. That parallel is explicitly expanded on in the pages of Wizard and Glass when, spoiler alert, Flag returns with the recreation of Emerald City. Number five, Twinner. Though it's never explicitly stated, it's very possible that Mother Abigail and Aunt Talitha could very easily be twinners. Similarly, if King came out and said that Tom and Wolf from the Talisman were twinners, I wouldn't be surprised. Number six, The Shining. When Mother Abigail describes her prophecies, she states that her grandmother had called it the shining lamp of God or just the shine. Number seven, um, Legion. Like I said earlier, uh, Tom refers to Flag as Legion, and this is a reference that's popped up in It. Um, it's going to pop up again in Storm of the Century. We saw it in The Gunslinger. Um, and again, if you want to listen to me talk about Legion in much more detail, um, check out the bonus edition um, of my review of It entitled The Spider and the Turtle. Uh, number eight is Blue Fire from Flag's Fingertips. It's something that we see from Flag again and again and again. Uh, and number nine is Castle Rock, Maine. Upon the conclusion of the novel, Franny says that she'd like to go back to Maine to visit Western Maine and spend time in some of those small towns, including Castle Rock. So those are all the Easter eggs we have, but now I'm going to spend some time talking about the Stephen Kingisms. Our Stephen Kingisms are trips, I'm sorry, tricks and traits and tropes and patterns of Stephen King's works that you'll see from book to book to book. Number one is characters coming off drugs on the beach. 
Here, it's Larry, and most famously, I'd say, it's Eddie Dean in The Drawing of the Three. Number two is The Evil Mother. Franny's mother is at times so cartoonishly evil, she's reminiscent of Margaret White. Number three is The Servant to the Supernatural Threat. Here, it's Lloyd um, to flag, or trash to flag, but... We've seen it in Salem's Lot, and we'll see it again with um, Ace Merrill and Buster Keaton serving Leland Gaunt in Needful Things. Number four is The Odd Couple on the Road. Here we have Nick and Tom. We've seen it before with Jack and Wolf. Number five is The Evil Vehicle. Larry is convinced that his motorcycle will come after him for revenge for abandoning it. And we, of course, seen The Evil Vehicle in nearly every Stephen King work leading up to this. Number six is the long walk. Uh, characters walk for long stretches at a time down highways and country roads, and the final confrontation between order and chaos and good and evil comes when our main characters go for a very long walk. This, of course, uh, can be seen in the Richard Bachman story, The Long Walk. Number seven is race and racial conflict. With the time he spends giving us the history of Mother Abigail's family, King again explores racial tensions and outward racism. Number eight is the catchphrase. God, Stephen King loves his catchphrases. Um, from the very get-go, um, you know, we have, uh, they're all going to laugh at you. We have had um, Red Rum uh, come here and take your medicine. Um, and here we have uh, My Life for You. Do you believe that happy crappy is the king, I'm sorry, the kid's uh, favorite saying? Of course, we've had uh, Beep Beep Richie in It. Uh, we have had, um, they all float in It. So, I mean, it's Stephen King really, you know, he, he makes things memorable when he creates the uh, um, his catchphrases. Number nine, um... Is gun barrel insertion into a body part? I hate the fact that it happens here with the kid to trash can man. It's not the first time we've seen an unwelcome insertion of a gun barrel into another person. We saw it the first time in the pages of the gunslinger when the gunslinger performs an abortion. Number 10, um, we have the Colorado Mountains as seen in The Shining and Misery. Number 11, uh, we have Bernie Wrightson drawing a wolf. Uh, we've seen this in Cycle of the Werewolf. We see him drawing wolves uh, as they're hunting the kid, and we'll see wolves kind of again in Wolves of the Kala. Number 12 is a character trapped in a car with an evil dog outside. Uh in here, it's the kid, um, and uh, of course, most famously, we've seen that in Cujo. Number 13 is the unstable alpha male, which is one of the more popular and most seen uh, Stephen Kingisms. Uh, and though he isn't exactly an alpha male, Harold, uh, his descent into darkness after all the obsession and the hate, it's, it's similar to uh, Buster Keaton, Big Jim Rennie, Craig Toomey, um, and other characters. Uh, Harold also is in some ways very reminiscent of Todd Bowden from Apt Pupil, who recognizes the evil within himself and winds up embracing it. 
Number 14 is sneaking in through basement windows. Franny does that in order to sneak into Harold's house, just as the losers do to the house on Nybolt Street. Number 15 is dog vision. In Cujo, we get chunks of text through the dog's perspective. Here, we manage to get the same perspective through Kojak's eyes as well. Or, as you want to refer to him, Big Steve. Number 16 um, is the monster in the corn. And I'm listing this as a Stephen Kingism and not an Easter egg because I'm making the argument that Randall Flagg is not he who walks behind the rose, which is the god that is found within the night, I'm sorry, the, the night shift short story, The Children of the Corn. Um, though Randall Flagg does appear in many, many uh, texts of Stephen King, the depiction of he who walks behind the rose is more in line with a very very lovecraftian type creature um and though flag does show signs of being kind of like a shaggy demon it, it just it doesn't line up i think that king has an image of something lurking behind the corn and that's a pattern that we see but i don't think that it's a literal connective tissue from one book to the next Number 17 is Zombie Musicians. Stu recounts a time when he met Jim Morrison after he died, which reminds me of the short story in um, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. You know they've got a hell of a band. Number 18, um, I probably should have led with this, um, but this, I mean, it, it's, it's all about community. I've said from the get-go that Stephen King writes about people coming together to overcome evil, and that is the plot of The Stand. Number 19 is the psychic or intuitive child. Um, Leo uh, has this um, as if he has the glimmer of the shine. We've seen this with Danny Torrance. We're about to see it again um, with Dinah in The Langoliers. Number 20 is the evil magician wanting a child. Andre Linoge from Storm of the Century, who also refers to himself as Legion, by the way, wants a child. Flag here, who also goes by the name of Legion, similarly wants a child. Number 21, evil birds. We see this here with the crows. Um, at one point, the judge thinks that the crow is smiling at him, a sensation that Jack Sawyer from The Talisman would relate to. Speaking of Jack... An older Jack might be able to talk a little bit about Gorg, the talking crow sidekick of Mr. Munchen, the child eater and right-hand man to the Crimson King, um, characters from the sequel to The Talisman, Black House. Number two, uh, 22 is the writer. Harold is a writer, though not published, uh, and is a different link in the chain of writers that have populated his books in Salem's Lot. Here it's almost as if King is commenting on his own worst impulses rather than setting the writer up as the hero, um, instead setting him up as the ultimate villain. Number 23 is the abandoned Quonset huts with dead soldiers. Uh, trash Cant Man uh, visits a ruined military base in the desert that is nearly identical to one that Jake Chambers and Oi visit in Wolves of the Kala. Number 24, Stew in Captivity in Stovington is reminiscent of Andy McGee locked up by the shop. So that's all Stephen Kingisms that I have. Guys, this is it. I've gotten to the end. Um, we are well over an hour. This was very long analysis of uh, The Stand. 
I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and the age-old debate about what's better, the stand or it, that's completely up to you at this point. I have poured in all of my thoughts. Um, and upon my reread, I'm going to have to go down in favor of it. I had difficulty rereading it. Um, sorry, rereading the stand. Um, now that I've finished my review, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, during the stand... I wanted to give up this podcast, to be perfectly honest. Part of me knew this was going to happen. Part of me knew that after it, um, after I got through with it, um, which was what kind of one of my personal goals doing this podcast, that um, I didn't have much to look forward to. And when I started reading The Stand again, there was a lot of pressure on me to say a lot. And I found that I didn't have a lot to say because, and maybe this is just my reading and I didn't read deep enough it didn't feel as though there was a lot of subtext so there really wasn't a lot for me to talk about more than really what was happening on the page I didn't really want to get into the biblical stuff because aside from the fact that it's about good versus evil and we live in a predominantly Christian society in America I just didn't want to point out every religious um, reference I didn't want to point out necessarily every Tolkien reference also um so I just found that I didn't have much to say. Then again, I just I just devoted three episodes clocking in over an hour to the stand. So me not having much to say kind of tells you the expectations I have for myself. Anyway, I have read the stand a handful of times, um, much like the... Uh, my uh, it um i don't foresee myself reading the stand again there's really not much of a reason for me to do so what i did enjoy about reading the stand this time around was envisioning um matthew mcconaughey as randall flag that was great because i'm really looking forward to seeing what josh boone does with uh his adaptation of the stand i'm very very excited that we are coming into um a new age of Stephen King. Uh, there are gener There's a generation out there that didn't grow up uh, where Stephen King was just on top the way that many of the listeners out there, the way that I myself grew up. Well, I grew up in a Stephen King world. Stephen King was the guy, um, and the, the generations after me have grown up in a world um, that has been inspired by Stephen King, um, and the storytellers and the writers and the filmmakers have grown up themselves in the world of Stephen King, and that's the product that's being released. But Stephen King, that that pure, um, that pure line, um, isn't really there. So it's good to know that we're getting back into a world where it is being released as a two-part miniseries. I'm sorry, a two-part um, movie. The Stand is being released as a four-part movie, and now Sony has picked up the rights to uh, the Dark Tower series. That's that's it, guys. That's that's the big three right there. That's that's the, the the holy trinity of Stephen King's works. So, I mean, I know that the the Dark Tower's been been bounced around from production company, you know, from from studio to studio for for five years now or so. Um, so I'll hold my breath until you know we hear a, a confirmation that there's actual casting. Um, I think that that will go a long way. Um. And then when that happens, like I said, we have the big three, and that that's that's a new age of Stephen King, because that will be three. 
that's the three big ones going to the big screen, whereas we've only had it on television before television was the 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 commodity it is now. We had the stand, same thing as a TV miniseries before television was the go-to place. Uh, I mean, I think that the stand would work wonders as an HBO series. Um, you could draw it out over a couple seasons, and it would work great. Um, but you know, at the same time, if you pare down some characters, uh, I think that you could definitely do wonders in a four-part um, movie. Which, hey, Peter Jackson showed us that he can do it, right? So if Peter Jackson was able to adapt J.R.R. Tolkien, here we have um, the modern-day American version of that. So yes, I think that I think that it can be done. So. Anyway, I'm kind of just rambling at this point, but um, The Stand is definitively one of Stephen King's greatest works. Um, it is a high-water mark, um, and I don't think that there would be a Stephen King cast if he had not written it in uh, 1978 because it sort of blew the doors open of the possibilities of what he could do, and I think that he proved to the world that he was more than a um, horror writer. I think that he proved to himself that he could do much more than just writing about small towns or um, that small scale. Um, I think that this paved the way for what he would do with a dark tower. And like I said, it gave us Randall Flagg, whose presence in Stephen King's works cannot be understated enough. He's an incredible character. So everyone, that's kind of all I have to say right now. Um, if you are listening to this and you have listened to the dark and you have read the dark tower as well, um, I have also published a uh, simultaneous bonus episode um, where I, I examine the, those very explicit connections between The Stand and The Dark Tower, so give that a listen. If you have not listened to The Dark Tower, I would avoid that now. I would go read The Dark Tower, then you can go back to it. So thank you, everyone, and if you have not done so already, feel free to, to write in. Feel free to um, write a review on iTunes. Um, and subscribe to iTunes because that really helps me get me out there. And follow me on Interest and Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook. And I will see you all here next week as I review the 1994 Mick Garris-directed uh, TV miniseries starring Rob Lowe, Molly Ringwald, Jamie Sheridan, and Gary Sinise. So everyone, I'll see you here next week, same King time, same King channel. And as we all know... M-O-O-N spells King Cast. Hey now, hey now, don't you-